All right, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles and turn in them to Genesis chapter 3, if you will. Genesis chapter 3, and the title of my message this morning is Trouble in Paradise. Well, last week we saw God institute marriage. And I think it is safe to say that by the time we get to chapter 3, just a few verses later, the honeymoon is over. The honeymoon is over. When Dina and I got married, my parents graciously uh, provided a honeymoon for us. They sent us to the Bahamas on a cruise. And uh, we had never done, of course, anything like that, Dina and I, individually before we were married. And so we were really excited to go. And I remember that my dad, being my dad, scheduled the flight down to Florida like at this ungodly hour of 5.30 in the morning, the day after our wedding. And so once we got to Florida and we took the bus ride from Orlando out to Cocoa Beach, of course we were tired. Dina slept on the bus. In fact, somebody on the airplane asked me if I was traveling with my daughter. I'll never forget that. It's like... Gee, thank you. What? He ended up being a missionary that uh, we actually became friends with. Um, but as we were traveling, we got to the uh, place where you board the cruise ship. And we were waiting in line. And there was a couple before us who apparently was on, they're on, they were on their honeymoon also. And... <laughs> They were excited. You could tell that they were in love. You know, they were continuously kissing. And we were just like, okay, we just want to get on board. Okay, we're tired. All right. And I heard him talking about, you know, this is going to be the best cruise. I, I said, he said, you know, we, honey, you can get whatever you want. I, I'm flush with cash. I was like, well, I, that's interesting to know. So we got on board the ship. And after we got settled into our cabin, Dina says, hey, you know, do you mind if I take a nap? And it was, yeah, I understood completely. But I was wired. So I decided to take a walk around the ship. And it was enormous. It's one of the, it was one of those huge cruise ships. And so I was gone for quite a while. And finally, to get back to my cabin, I needed to cut through the center of the ship, which was the casino. And as I was cutting through the center of the ship, that couple that I had seen earlier in line were sitting next to each other, and she was crying. And, you know, me being the Christian that I am, I eavesdropped. I wanted to know why. <laughs> well, lo and behold, within the couple of hours of being there, he lost the majority of his cash at the casino. And I said, trouble in paradise. What a way to start off a marriage. Genesis chapter 3 is the chapter where it all goes wrong. It is the root cause for every difficulty, evil, suffering, wickedness that we see in our world today. The Bible is constructed in a very unique way. And I've done this several times, but I'll do it again. God created everything, and everything was perfect. This page. God restored everything and brings it back to a garden state on this page. Everything in between is God having to do that, to accomplish that, to redeem the world. 
If we are going to deal with the woes of our society, we need to deal with the root cause of those problems. We are so consumed with addressing the symptoms, we never address the root cause. The root cause is the fact that Adam and Eve disobeyed God and the fall occurred. Sin and death entered this world. And as a result, each and every person born in Adam afterwards was born with a nature that was fallen, separated from God, and destined to die. Riddled and plagued by sin. And as a result, through the wickedness of man's heart, we see the evil of free will being exercised and that depravity formed before us. This is where it all begins. And so this week and next week, we're going to see the problem and the remedy. As the trouble enters, we're going to see how it entered. And in it, I believe that God is going to reveal to us and remind us of the greatest tactic that we have to combat temptation. We're all tempted, right? It's not a sin to be tempted. Jesus was tempted. But we must resist that temptation. We must overcome and prevail against that temptation. And today we're going to show you how you can do that by understanding why Eve fell and looking at the promises of the New Testament that God gives us to allow us to overcome the temptations that we will face as Christians here in this world. So let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 3. As a new character is introduced to our discussion. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Here we go. The introduction, this subtle approach, the inducement of deception that Satan used to allure Eve away with. Notice with me that the serpent we now know to be Satan himself. In Revelation 12, 9, John writes, he says, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil, and Satan who deceives the whole world. And he was cast to earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Satan is still deceiving people in the exact same fashion that he deceived Adam and Eve. Eve specifically. So to understand that deception will allow us to prepare for the temptations that we will face and overcome them and resist them by knowing the truth of Scripture. We need to understand what I would consider the content of deception. What is the content of that deception? What does it look like? And what was Satan playing upon when he tempted Eve? Now, before we go farther, I want to address the the character of Satan himself. 
C.S. Lewis stated, he says, there are two equal and opposite errors to which our race can fall about the devil and his demons. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and yet feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Either we give them too much attention or not enough attention at all. As Christians, we need to understand that Satan mentioned in the Bible is not the personification of evil. It, it isn't some metaphorical uh, you know, idea of evil. It isn't hyperbole. It isn't a character that is created to represent evil. He himself was a fallen angel that was thrown out of heaven due to the pride that he exhibited in heaven desiring to be like God. He is a real adversary. The angels that fell are now demons and they are real adversaries. And truly they are the direction of the war in which we are engaged in. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, the Bible says. This is where we need to take the battle to them through prayer and the reading of the word and the resisting of temptation. Satan is real, and he goes about as a roaring lion seeking in whom he may destroy. Jesus told us that Satan comes, the devil comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. But Jesus then tells us that he has come to overcome the devil. It may surprise you to know that a poll was recently taken. 70% of Americans say they believe in the devil. However, though, half of them say they think he is a personal force, and the other half thought that he was an impersonal source. Anything but real. His deception appears to play on a lack of knowledge and understanding of the intent of the direction of God. By stating here, what did God really say? Did God really say it? In the ambiguity that Eve possessed concerning the word of God, it seemed to allow room for Satan to cause contemplation, leading Eve to believe that there was something lacking in Eve's life that was desirable that was needed. And I believe that it is possible that Eve even had good intentions by succumbing to the temptation of Satan, that she wanted to be like God. But we live in a culture today, and let me say this, and please listen to me, if, 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 if don't hear anything else, hear this. Reading our Bibles daily is no longer optional, Okay? We need to be in God's Word so we clearly know and understand what God has said, right? If we can stop the temptation by simply saying, did God really say? We can reply, yes, He really said it. Amen. That stops it there pretty quickly, right? We need to be in God's Word. I am so concerned about the no, a number of young people over the years that have told me that they have no interest in reading. They have no interest in reading. And you know, all, some of them would even say, but you know what, I'm very interested in what God's will is for my life. Well, let's put two plus two together. Okay, two plus two still equals four, even though some philosophers, one of my favorite ones, 
says our society today works on the assumption that two plus two now equals fish. Okay, it doesn't, logic doesn't play a role in our society anymore, but two plus two still equals four. Let me ask you a question. You want to know God's will? Yes or no? Okay, he gave you his written word. Does he want you to read his written word? There's God's will for your life, right? Two plus two equals four. If he gave you the written word, he wants you to read the written word. But I don't like to read. You know what? Suck it up. Let's start reading. Okay? We need to be in God's word, guys. Okay? Let's put down the social media. Let's put down the phones for a while. I don't care if you read it on your phone. I don't care where you read it. Just read it. The number one problems with Bibles in America today is the fact that they're not read. We cannot leave the door of opportunity for Satan to sneak his way in because we don't know clearly what God's Word says. And trust me, we're not going to learn it by osmosis. We're not going to put it under our pillow, lay on top of it, and the next morning be, oh, I just had this epiphany from God. My pillow's lumpy because the Bible's underneath it. No, read it. Read the Word of God, please. I'm begging you. You need to do this for your spiritual health. Notice with me, she, however, wasn't clear in what God had said. In verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest God die. Now, I don't know about you, but I never remember God saying that. Oh, he says, if you eat it, you shall surely die. But he didn't talk anything about touching it. There was ambiguity there in Eve's mind concerning the clarity and the understanding of God's word. He never said anything about touching it. Either she was unclear about what God had said, or she is uh, inserted that to create the emphasis that she had added. Either way, it paved the way to uncertainty to what God truly said. Jesus, when he was tempted, immediately resorted to his certainty in God's word. When tempted by the devil in Luke 4.4, Jesus answered and said to him, it is written, meaning I know what it says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Paul had this same clarity when he wrote in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. I want you to underline that word in your Bible. We're going to come back to it. Thoroughly equipped for every good work. We need to have clarity. We need to know what we believe and why we believe it. We cannot leave room, that door slightly open, for Satan to walk through. He only needs a sliver of an opportunity. And this was a sliver enough to allow him to plant an idea in the mind of Eve that germinated and brought about the fall. Notice with me in verse 4. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. 
For God knows that in that day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan immediately tries to redefine the consequences that God had stated. God said clearly, you will die if you eat this. Satan immediately replies, no, you won't. Do you notice that in our society, we've almost eliminated all consequence for wrongdoing? And our society is flourishing because of that, right? There isn't a level of justice anymore within our society to allow a cohesiveness and a healthy harmony to be found within our society any longer. The moment we remove consequence, the moment we remove consequence is the moment that we allow the depravity of man's heart to run rampant. Now, some of you may think in your mind, well, the grace of God, didn't that alleviate the consequences of our sin? Didn't God alleviate the consequences of our sin? Let's think about that for a moment. The consequences were still suffered, weren't they? Just not by us, but by Jesus Christ, right? God still held Christ accountable, laid our sins upon him on his shoulders. The consequences for our actions are found in him. That's why we rejoice in what God has done for us, right? The moment we eliminate the consequences is when we allow sin to run rampant. So the first thing that he does is that he offers a contradiction to what God has said. You shall not surely die. But then, he follows that with a new promise. And that is, you shall be like God. Now that is important for our discussion this morning because we've already learned that we were created in the likeness of God, right? That we had a unique capacity and capability of interacting and fellowshipping with God. But now Satan wants to take that one step further, that you too can become like God. You too can become a God. Let me ask you a question. Can you perfect perfection? Yes or no? No. The moment you try to augment, change perfection is the moment it moves from perfection to imperfection. But all of this led to the contemplation that now resides in Eve's mind. James tells us very clearly that sin begins in the mind of the person, right? That's where it all starts. So if we're going to deal with temptation, we must first deal with our thoughts, bringing every thought, as the Bible says, into the captivity of Christ, prepare ourselves for the temptations that we are going to face. I'll remember when I was a young man and my pastor was getting ready, helping me get ready to lead this church. And he said, Let's, I want you to be careful. There are three things that men fall to 
that disqualifies them from ministry. Number one is gold. is when they become greedy after money, and money becomes their pursuit. Number two, girls, sexual temptation. Number three, of course, is glory, where pride fills them. He says all three of these will remove you from ministry before you can even think twice about it. He says, here's how you can prepare to resist those temptations. Think it out. Play it out in your mind. What would happen if you were caught embezzling funds? How would it feel to stand before your congregation and have to confess that? That's something I never wanted to do. I never wanted to come close to that. How about falling into sexual sin? Having to look my wife in the eye. Having to look my daughter in the eye. And say that I have fallen into sexual sin. I don't ever want to experience that. Glory. Thinking for a moment that any good thing that happens here at Calvary is a result of something I did, right? I am fully convinced that I am in God's way more than, I, than anything else. It's not because of, you know, it's in spite of. But playing it out in your mind or learning from the examples of Scripture, when you see the fall of Samson, what do you think? When you see individuals who succumb to the temptation and disqualify, Adam and Eve changed a whole world. And remembering that sin never is contained to you and you alone, it always affects those around you. Not only does sin complicate our life, sin destroys our life. Unfortunately, the idea was placed in the mind of Eve. Notice with me in verse 6, as she begins contemplating what the serpent had just stated to her. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate it. And she also gave it to her husband with her, and he ate it. Then their eyes, uh, both of them, were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They hid themselves. I think about that. They hid themselves. The perfection had now slipped into imperfection. For Eve had saw that it was good for food, the lust of the flesh. She saw that it was pleasant to the eyes, the lust of the eyes. And she saw that the tree was desirable to make one wise, the pride of life. And she ate of it. As John wrote in 1 John 2, 16 and 17, For all that is in the world, notice this, is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Is not of the Father, but it is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lusts of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. The lust of the flesh. It was desirable. The 
ambiguity that allowed Satan into the mind. And once he planted that seed of doubt, and I'll talk about what that doubt was in just a moment, she then perceived the same thing in a completely different light, right? Notice with me, it isn't until after the temptation that she looked at the tree in the manner in which she did. Oh, yeah. That looks pretty good for food. The lust of the flesh. That is a really, really good-looking tree. The lust of the eyes. I bet you that's going to make me wise, make me like God. The pride of life. The pride of life is the arrogance, the pride of self and presumption. The pride of life is manifested when self becomes the primary concern of the individual. It was certainly through the streets of self-esteem and the self-esteem movement that paved the way for a society to rest comfortably in the concept of the pride of life. The lust of the flesh, seeking after the appetites of the flesh, desiring the things that our flesh wants when the flesh wants it, and the lust of the eyes, seeing it and then desiring it and then coveting it. As one wrote, he says, to this day, every temptation, every attack from the enemy, and every worldly seduction falls into one of these three categories, because Satan has no other place. Therefore, to counter the lust of the flesh, do what Paul did when he says, I do not allow my body to have mastery over me. As he said in 1 Corinthians 9.27, but I discipline my body and bringing it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. To counter the lust of the eyes, do what David did when he said, I will set no wicked thing before me. In Psalm 101.3, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. To counter the pride of life, let us emulate what Jesus had done when he humbled himself and made himself of no reputation. In Philippians 2, 7, but made himself, that is, Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. However, though, I do believe there's another consideration that we must look at this morning if we're going to be victorious in overcoming and resisting temptation. First of all, it looks like Eve had the intention of a closer, more intimate relationship with God. It appeared from the text that Eve was desiring to be more like God. It was her desire to be closer to God. And this would allow her to do so. So she was tempted in a perfect state. It was her desire to add to her perfection. She had good intentions, but she was wrong. But notice with me, if you will, that when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, Jesus also was in a perfect state, so Satan approached him in the same manner. Flip with me, if you will, to your, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. 
Luke chapter 4. I think it is interesting that Eve was in a perfect state, wasn't she? Everything was perfect around her. And yet, she succumbed to temptation. I wonder how this influences the conversation of the psychological dilemma or root of concern between nature and nurture. This would tell me that even the one who is raised in the perfect environment carries within them a nature that is still has the capacity to sin and to do wickedness and evil. Right? So it has to be the nature that we are concerned about. We need to address that if we are going to address other factors. Now certainly environment can play an impact. But it's playing an impact upon a fallen heart already. A heart that is already separated from God, apart from Christ. Notice with me here in chapter 4, verse 1, the same pattern. As again, Satan now, as he did with Adam and Eve, approaching one who is in the state of perfection, and Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing, and afterwards when he had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But Jesus answered him in saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give to you and their glory, for, the, for it has been delivered to me, and I now give it to whomever I wish. And therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered him and said to him, Get ye behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then he brought him to Jerusalem. And set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Satan using scripture here. Notice with me. Did God really say, right? And Jesus answered, and said to him, it shall be said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Notice, every temptation. Within it, the temptation of the bread, the lust of the flesh, the temptation of the kingdom, the lust of the eyes, the temptation of tempting the pride of life. And where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Notice that Satan twisted Scripture to bring about the temptation. Notice that Jesus countered with Scripture, clearly understood. There was no ambiguity in the mind of Jesus concerning what God said, right? Now, here's the interesting thing. There are some who, when they read the Bible, believe that there are certain books of the Bible that are pretty much what I call flyover books. It's kind of like those states between, you know, Chicago and California, you know? 
yeah, I think there's some states down there, you know, but they're flyover states. That's the only real interaction I want to have with them. They're of no real relevance, and there's nothing really attractive about them, so we just fly over them. And there are some who look at books of the Bible that way. Well, it's interesting to note that the book that Jesus used to counter this is the book of Deuteronomy. Out of all of the books, this is what he chose to counter with. And for many, Deuteronomy is one of those flyover books that we may sometimes pay no attention to. I think Jesus gives us a better lesson. Now, I want you to consider something with me, something that I find fascinating. I think that if we can understand what led Eve to that point of contemplation, to consider what Satan was saying and to act upon it, If we understand why she felt that necessary, I believe we can better prepare ourselves for the temptation that is coming against us. And that is this. It is clear to me that Eve, even in a state of perfection, believed that she was lacking something. That she was lacking something. That there was more to be had. In the New Testament, Paul the Apostle made some interesting statements about us as Christians being complete in Christ. The word complete there means lacking nothing. Lacking nothing. The doctrine or the theology is the theology of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. I believe many Christians today believe that they are lacking something. That God isn't providing something for them that only the world can provide for them, and therefore they look to the world to do so. But is it possible that that is the largest open door for Satan to come in and to exploit us? Believing that we are uh, imperfect, that we are incomplete in Christ. Notice with me in Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. These verses led me in a completely different direction in my life, uh, in my studies, and in my uh, pursuits. I wanted to know what Paul meant here. Now notice with me in Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Okay? He says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the traditions of man, according to the basic principles of this world, or as some of your translations, I think rightly translate it, according to the basic um, elemental spirits of this world, meaning that spiritual influenced ideas are going to rob you and cheat you. Of what? What are they going to rob me of? And not that according to Christ. So what he is saying here is that there are ideas in this world, that there are ideas in this world that are crafted by the traditions of man, and those traditions of man are crafted by the elemental spirits working behind those men. That's what he's saying here. And he says, succumbing to these ideas, these philosophies that are filled with empty deceit, 
They promise something that they are incapable of providing. Let me say that again. They promise something that they are incapable of providing. He says, beware, lest anyone cheat you. The word there in Greek is fascinating. It means to rob you. It's as if you were walking down the road or on the sidewalk and then coming out of the shadows, someone blindsides you, mugs you, takes, you, takes from you what you have and runs off. He says that these ideas, these promises, right, that will, will not provide you anything, oh, you shall not surely die, but you'll be more like God, right? Then... Notice how he counters this. How do we prepare for this? Okay, how do we protect ourselves? Notice what he says in verse 9. For in him, that is Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are what in him? And what does complete mean? Lacking nothing. There's nothing that this world can offer you that is superior to that which Jesus Christ can provide for you. That's what he is saying here. So don't get fooled, don't get cheated, don't get robbed, don't succumb to these ideas, don't believe that you're lacking anything. You are complete in him. Christ is sufficient. That's where I start now. No matter what it is in life, if it's an ideology, if it's a thought, whatever it may be, I start with God and find that I'm often resolved in God, meaning that I'm complete. Paul echoes this thought in this next verse. Notice with me in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. For all scripture is given by inspiration of God, God breathed. And is profitable for doctrine, teaching, that is, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be what? Say it, come on. Complete. What does that mean? Lacking nothing. If we believe that we are lacking nothing in Jesus Christ, we have slammed the door on the face of Satan. I don't have to succumb. Once I know what God has actually said, and there's no ambiguity to allow that door to slip open. You know, that ambiguity is kind of like when you shut a door in your home, but then let's say you open a window in that room and the door pushes open because of the pressure change. It wasn't fully latched, was it, that door? That's the ambiguity that I want to alleviate. I want to eliminate. And I do so by clearly knowing what the Bible says. And then once the door is sh shut, I do so securely knowing that I'm complete in Jesus. Thoroughly equipped for every good work. Right? We went full circle. She didn't know what the Word says. We need to know what the Word says, right? Now I want to end with this, if I may. In 1 Corinthians 10.13, I want you to look at this verse a little bit differently now that we have discovered what we have just learned. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, meaning temptation is temptation. 
Satan came at uh, Jesus with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's the way he's going to come after you. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But how does he do that? But with the temptation also makes a way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. Now, often we think of that way of escape similar to that of Joseph running out of the room before Potiphar's wife could get her hands all over him. You know, the first cougar of the Old Testament, yeah. But what happens if that way of escape is simply knowing I'm complete in Jesus? Because where does sin begin? The mind. If I know in my mind and in my heart that I'm complete in Jesus... I can bear the temptation because I'm lacking nothing. We need to rediscover the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and by doing so, rediscover the sufficiency of God's word. And we will do so by knowing what God said so that the next time Satan may come across our path and say, but did God really say And he removes consequence or counters consequence and gives false promises. We know, as Jesus did, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the Father's mouth. If we are going to stand in the days of our culture today, inundated by the various philosophies of this world that are nothing more than the traditions of men spurred on by the demonic world behind them. If we are going to stand and not be cheated, we must realize that we are complete in Him. Amen? Father, we thank You so much for Your Word today. And I pray, Lord, that Father, just from this day forward, that each and every day we would spend time reading the Bible. And we may not understand it all, and we may question some of the things that we read or not understand them or uh, even maybe possibly disagree initially with them. By filling our mind with the Word of God, we are preparing to ourselves to counter or to stand when Satan would come to us and say, did God really say? And we can, in simple faith, say, yes, he did. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to stand against the temptations of this world that find themselves in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Father, I pray that we realize that we must die to self, take up our cross and follow after you, to glorify you in and through our lives and by everything that we say and do. Father, I just pray that you would give us the strength to do so. Open our eyes and heart to your word as we read it by your spirit. And we ask all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand for our closing song.